So I'm glad you're here. Let's jump right in. It's going to be a little different. We're going to just kind of jump into the word. But uh, before that, a story. I was um, with my kids this past summer. It was, I think, the month of July, maybe. My wife and I decided to take Ava and Aiden and Alex to go see the fourth installment of the Toy Story series. Any Toy Story fans? Yeah, great, cute little movies. And we're watching the fourth one, and something from my nightmares showed up in it. Uh, we're getting this scene, and uh, Woody and some of the toys run into this old antique shop. And in the antique shop, not only were there these creepy uh, like porcelain dolls who could talk, but also there were these ventriloquist dolls like walking like the walking dead with their heads like cranking around and like staring at you. Fun. It was terrifying. And uh, I was just watching my little kids try not to react to teach them to be scared or something. Any, any parents ever do that? You have a phobia and you try not to teach your child to be irrationally afraid of something. So I'm like playing it cool, but in my mind, I'm like, this is horrifying. Seeing these creepy ventriloquist dolls come to life. That's a nightmare, isn't it? Anybody, anybody share my like, would you like to walk through an antique store with like 20 ventriloquist dolls all staring at you like this? right? They're freaky. They're creepy. Or, or maybe for you, that's not what's creepy. Maybe you've seen some of those, those uh, robots on YouTube that look just like humans, and they talk, and they can even carry on a conversation. Is that not the stuff of nightmares? Crazy. Uh, there's an actual term for this. It's called the uncanny valley. The reaction of revulsion and repulsiveness that you and I get when we see something that appears to be human and alive is actually called the uncanny valley. Like, let's look at, look at this, this lady here, for instance. Uh, does this creep anybody out? Did, any, did every, anybody just go, Ugh. anybody? That's, that's not a woman, okay? That's a robot. That's a robot, and she can talk and have conversations, and something about that makes a lot of our hair stand up. Doesn't it? Some of you, you don't have hair to stand up. But if you did, it would stand up. We, there's something that happens in us, and it's called the uncanny valley. The sociologists and psychologists actually have a term for it. And it's this dip in emotional response that we as human beings have when we see something that appears to be alive, but it's actually not alive. There's actually a graph I found online. It shows you how the uncanny valley works, that as something gets more humanistic, as we approach it, there's actually this big drop-off. So none of us feel it when we just see a machine doing its job. But when you see a machine that looks like a human, all of a sudden, our response drops off, and that dip is known as the uncanny valley. You're all like, this is super nerdy, and I don't know why you're talking about it. So, well, you learned something at church, right? So good. I just want you to keep this in mind, the uncanny valley. It's the response. It's the response we have when we see something that looks to be like a living being, a living human, but in actuality, we know it's not alive. There is an innate response, revulsion, revulsion inside of us when we see that. And I want you to just keep the concept of the uncanny valley. Let's just take it off the front burner. We're going to put it back on that little one, and we're going to set it to three to simmer for a bit. And we'll come back, and hopefully it will make sense, okay? You trust me on that? We're going to do something a little different today. I'm going to just give you all my points at once because all the people who came to church that want to hear a word, who can track along, and we're all mature enough to do that, I'm just going to give you them all at once as we look today in Matthew chapter 4. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there, Matthew chapter 11, sorry, and I'm going to write down my points while you do. Here are my points. There, we're going to talk today about an indictment. We're going to talk about... An intent. We're going to talk about an inversion. And then we'll close off with an invitation. Because how many of you know God is a God of invitation? An, in an indictment, an intent, inversion, and invitation as we look at Mark chapter 11. Now, just to catch you up to speed, we have been in a series we're calling Pray Like Jesus for the last few weeks where we're looking at this concept of prayer and we're finding out as the disciples asked Jesus and they said, hey, if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to learn how to pray like Jesus. And so they asked him, Jesus, teach us about prayer. Teach us about this mystery that seems to be the main connecting thing to the life that you are and who you are and the life you live. 
and what you're doing. And so they asked him how to pray. And over the last few weeks, we've been learning about prayer. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. I've grown from it and feel refreshed by it. And my prayer life has taken a new level of glory. Anybody else? I'm in a great season with that. Now, we've learned that prayer is fundamentally, according to Jesus, prayer is our main mechanism of relationship. That ultimately, prayer is about our relationship and our connectivity to the living God. It's, it's, uh, one writer said it's keeping company with God. It's what we do to be with God. Amen? We learned that week one. And then we, the last two weeks, we've been looking at, at kind of the practice of prayer and what we do when we pray and the habit of prayer and a lifestyle of prayer and how to pray and partner with God. But this week, what I want to do in, Matthew, in Mark 11 is I want to just sew it all up with really Jesus's quintessential mountaintop statement about prayer and the purpose of it. And we're going to look at it in Mark 11. And this is a peculiar passage, to say the least. It's a passage of scripture that frankly has kind of confounded us when we read it because it almost seems like Jesus is just acting irrationally and not according to the character of Jesus that we're generally accustomed to seeing. And let's read it and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Mark chapter 11. Do you have it? Are you there? If not, put it on the screen. You should bring a Bible to church, though. I, I like having my own Bible. You should do it. Put it up on your phone if you want. But follow along. Mark chapter 11, verse 12 says this. The next day, they were leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. No fruit, just leaves. Because it was not yet season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say that. Now on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. What? He overturned tables, like literally grabbed a hold of tables and flipped them. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of, say it, of prayer for all nations, prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Now let's just pause there. And does that strike anybody else as odd to envision Jesus doing this? Like, let's just be honest in church. Yeah, like that's not necessarily the idea of Jesus I have. If I go back to, like, I grew up in church and in, in old churches, you often find like this picture of white Jesus on the wall, you know? Jesus wasn't white, FYI. But like Caucasian Jesus with perfectly permed, dirty blonde hair looking off into the lights. Like, like that. anybody see that Jesus? And he's only nice and he just wants to pet puppies and kittens and like that, that, that idea of Jesus. This does not go with that Jesus, does it? We see Jesus absolutely incensed. Well, first we find he comes up to a fig tree hoping there's fruit. And in what almost looks like a tantrum, the creator of the heavens and the earth says, you will never bear fruit again. And then moves on like, whoa, okay. Hangry much, right? <laughs> you're not you when you're hungry. Anybody, you know what I'm saying? Anybody like married to that person? They get hangry. They're not, they, guys, look ahead, look ahead. <laughs> Was Jesus hangry? And then things get weirder. So he, 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 he curses, literally cusses out a tree. And then he goes into the temple and he starts Flipping tables, like, like can you imagine being in a place of commerce and somebody comes up and you're just minding your business and they just start flipping everything over. Like what, bro, relax, right? And then it says he's literally preventing people from carrying merchandise through the court. It's like you can almost envision him blocking them, you know, like doing one of these. It's, it's incredible to see Jesus acting this way. Like he is absolutely over the top flipping out. He is incensed. Something has caused this reaction in him 
We've got to ask the question as, as readers and as listeners, what, what caused Jesus this reaction? Why did he so reject and, and, and fall back? Why was he so angry and incensed? And is there a connection between the tree and the temple? And the answer is yes. If we read our Bibles and we had a chance to study the significance of the tree, the fig tree, and the temple, we'll find a lot of correlation. You actually find, if we wanted to go back and look at Genesis chapter 3, the fig tree is the first ever mentioned tree in the whole Bible. In fact, many Jewish scholars and rabbis believe that it was a fig that Adam and Eve ate that day. We don't know that. We don't know if it was an apple or if it was, you know, what it was. We don't know, but many believe it was a fig tree. Why? Because the Bible says that after they ate the fruit, they realized they were naked and they made coverings out of what? Fig leaves. Yeah, so so there's the fig tree right there uh, providing covering for, the, for Adam and Eve right there at the beginning. It's interesting. And then we find all throughout the Old Testament, through the prophets and through the Psalms, we find reference to the fig tree and the fruit that the fig tree provides. In fact, many believe that, that Israel's national tree and the representation of who they are was actually the fig tree. And so there was this kind of prophetic association with the fig tree. And so Jesus, in a very real sense, what he did in the temple mirrors what he's doing in the fig tree. Now, what to him was wrong with the fig tree? The Bible says that he saw it from afar off and it was in leaf. So it had leaves. It was all green. The fig fig leaves were actually very large. And he saw it from far off and he comes up closer though. And on inspection, there is no fruit to be found. Now you have to look. It's not like an orange tree. You can see when oranges are in fruit. They're they're orange. But a fig is actually kind of greenish red. And so you've got to get right up into it to see if there are figs. And the Bible says that he got there And there were no figs to be found. So he rejected it because why? Because it is something that had the appearance of life, but there was actually no life to be found. You see where this is going. Something that had the promise of fruit. Come over here. Look at these leaves. There's there's figs here. And then when you got closer and you saw, there's there's no figs here. There's no actual life here. That the, the promise of life, this is a facade. This is a fake. This is a counterfeit. That's not life. And this is what Jesus was doing in the temple. When he gets to the temple, he finds not life. What does he say? What is his indictment? He says, my house was to be a house of? What is prayer? We've learned what prayer is. Prayer is more than just doing this, dear Jesus. Prayer is the very connection to God, isn't it? Prayer is the very thing that connects heaven and earth and the people of God with God himself. Prayer is equal to the very presence of God dwelling in our midst. That's what prayer is. It very much is the fruit of life. And so Jesus comes into the temple and he says, I don't don't see any fruit. There's no fruit here. You know what, from far off, as I approached the temple and I saw people doing worshipy things and praying prayerful prayers and doing all the stuff of the church and all the stuff of the temple, but now that I'm up close, there's, there's no prayer here. There's no presence here. You had the promise of fruit, but there's no fruit to be found. I think this is what just made Jesus revolt. It's the uncanny valley. It's like the closer something gets to looking like it's living, but we actually know that it's not living, it's actually extra repulsive. It's like the deception is even greater, isn't it? I think that's why we react to those robots. It's because we know there's something off about it. I can see it in the eyes. And Jesus gets to the temple and he says, there is something very off about this and none of you even notice. And so he starts targeting things, doesn't he? He runs over to the tables of the money changers and he starts flipping them over. Now, what was that? Was, was, does Jesus hate money? No, not one little bit. But what was going on was they were actually extorting people. They were actually extorting people. They were actually changing money so that worshipers who were coming from all over the world had to use the exact currency of the temple. And so they had to trade their currency for the right change so they could purchase sacrifices. And they were marking up the exchange rate. And so the temple is now taking advantage and extorting would-be worshipers. That's not the only thing Jesus targeted, is it? It also tells us that, that what, what was happening, it says, it says that he, he, he was incensed because he started targeting the money changers 
But also, it wasn't just that he was, the, there was extortion happening, but there was also the desecration of what used to be holy. What does it say? It tells us that they were, sacri- they were selling doves. They were selling sacrifices. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? Convenience and sacrifice don't go in the same sentence. But the Jews had developed this system that says, well, as you pilgrimage from your town and you come to Jerusalem to worship, we'll, we'll keep the sacrifices here for you. We'll keep them fresh and decent, and you can purchase them at a small price. We'll make it a little easier for you. Make it a little more palatable, a little more comfortable. And so the sacrifices were convenient. And so Jesus, he, he, he targets it. It's not just that, but it actually tells us that there wasn't just the desecration of the holy through sacrifice, through, through convenience, but there was also compromise and corner cutting happening. What's it say? That, that image of him blocking people as they were going through the temple. Well, you had to understand the temple was actually situated right in the middle of Jerusalem. And all the commerce, and it was the epicenter of all Jerusalem. It's still there today. The Muslims have it. They have that space in, in Israel. And in, in the day of Jesus, there was a massive temple wall and temple court. And that if you wanted to get to the other side of it, you had to walk all the way around the temple. And so merchants were using the temple as a shortcut to get to the other side of the city. They were using the temple as a shortcut to get to where they want. They were just cutting corners. And Jesus said, this was meant to be a holy space, not a shortcut. This was meant to be a space of sacrifice and worship. This was meant to be a space where God dwelt here. And as I get here, I'm not seeing any living thing. I see, I see, I see a counterfeit. Had the promise of fruit, but there's no fruit. It, it was for Jesus. I think I, as soon as I read this and I started chewing on it and asking the Lord, why, why were you so mad that that image of the uncanny valley came to my spirit. I reacted because the deception was so great and people did not realize that although this looks like life, this is not life. That the glory is actually departed. Jesus says, my house was intended to be a house of prayer. The intention of this place was to be a house of prayer, to be a place of glory. It was to be the very place where the presence of God dwelt. Now, you got to understand some of the history of Israel and the history of the temple. It's a magnificent story. I mean, the history of Israel is Abraham was called out of obscurity, and God says, I'm going to make you a people of my own possession, and I'll be your God, and my presence will go before you. I will be with you. And then we find generations pass, and the Israelites are in captivity in Egypt. They're slaves, and God does this amazing work of rescue. After 500 years of slavery, Moses comes in, and God liberates them from the hand of Pharaoh. They cross the sea into the wilderness, heading to the promised land, and we find that a cloud led them, the presence of God in a glory cloud led them by day and a pillar of fire by night. His presence was actually with them and they saw it. And as they journeyed, they unfortunately stayed in the wilderness for 40 years. They actually established a system and a space for God to dwell. They built what was called the tabernacle. And this was to be the place where if you wanted to be with God and you wanted to get near God and you wanted to experience God, this was the primary place you did it. This was the place the presence of God dwelt on earth. That's what the tabernacle was. And so if you went to the tabernacle, it was the place that you would experience the presence and the glory of God. It was the place where you go to find the truth of the word revealed. I mean, it was a place that told the truth, the truth about sin, the truth about life, the truth about God, God's goodness, God's wrath, and everything in between. It was a place of the truth. It was a place that you would go to find mercy and forgiveness. You'd actually go and offer sacrifices, and you'd receive from God atonement, a fresh start. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? That's what the the tabernacle was. It was a place where you'd find peace and reconciliation. You could go to the tabernacle, experience the presence of God, worship, have your sins atoned for, and leave knowing I am right with God. What a beautiful thing. It was to be a place where the power and presence of God refreshed his people. That's what the tabernacle was. And so for years they had a tabernacle, and then we find Israel's history develops, and these kings start ruling, and the greatest king they ever had named David really established their kingdom ultimately, and David's son Solomon built 
a final permanent temple where God would be established, where his presence would be established. We actually find it in 2 Chronicles. You should look at it. 2 Chronicles shows the whole like landscape and the whole ar- architecture of the temple. It's magnificent. I mean, gold from, from floor to ceiling and just every spare no expense. It was the most lavish, incredible, incredible structure you can ever imagine. And then we find in 2 Chronicles 7 that the real glory wasn't in the walls. The real glory was in the atmosphere. And we find out that they had this worship consecration service. It went for weeks. And people, hundreds of thousands of people came from all over Israel. It says all of Israel gathered and descended upon the temple. And they worshiped and they sacrificed and they worshiped and they sacrificed and they worshiped and they sacrificed. And I'm talking hundreds of thousands of sacrifices. It's magnificent when you see it and you read it in the scripture. And then it says Solomon got up and he prayed a prayer of consecration and he dedicated it to the Lord and said, now, Lord, dwell here. And after he prayed, the Bible says, the presence of God fell from the heavens in fire and it consumed the offering. And the Bible says that the glory of God, the very presence of God was so powerful and so profound that the priests could not even stand up. Have you ever been in a room where it felt so sacred and so glorious that it actually causes a weight on you? To, they couldn't even stand up on the ground. Like, talk about glory. Like, that's the high glory that the temple was birthed in. Now, get that picture in your mind, and maybe we start to get an understanding about why Jesus was so incensed because he knew the intent He knew this was made to be a house where mercy flows and glory dwells and power is demonstrated and wisdom and the word of God is made manifest. This was to be a place of the presence of God. And on further inspection, this is so far short from the real thing. That's what sin is. Did you know that? Sin is to fall short of the intention of God. I know we think about sin as I did something bad. I did something wrong. That's, that's, only, that's only part of what it is. What sin ultimately is, is a failure to reach the intended design. That's what sin is. This is why it says in Romans 3.23, it says, for all have sinned and fall, say it, fall short of the glory of God. The actual word sin is to miss the mark. See, I believe what made Jesus so mad and so outraged that day is he understood the, 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 what they're missing It's not just that they're doing it wrong. It's that they're not getting it right. They're not getting what he had intended for them in the first place. He's like, really? Really? You've traded the glory of God in your midst for this? I think he does it with us. I think that's the heart of God when we sin and we fall short. I think it's not just like anger that we did something wrong. It's like, are you are you kidding me? You're settling for this when you were made for glory. You were made for so much more. You were made to experience the glory. Like, think about it. Some of you, some of you have a hang-up for man's opinion. Like, you are an addict on Facebook. You just, you post things and you monitor the posts, hoping to just get a little hit of validation and a little hit that makes you feel like you matter. And I feel like God would say, are you kidding me? You are trading the glory of the validation of God Almighty all over you for what a Facebook like? What? Or maybe that's not your thing. Maybe for you, it's like you struggle with substances. You're addicted to alcohol. You're addicted to some drug or food. And I think God would say, are you, are, are you serious? You would settle for what a bottle can do when unspeakable joy is in the glorious presence of God? Like, what? What are you doing? Whatever your thing is, maybe you're trying to find meaning and you think, you know what? The height of meaning is if I can just climb the corporate ladder and I can be the VP. And he's like, are you kidding me? The VP of your company, great, but that's not glory. You're made for glory. You've fallen so far short. See, I think the indictment is birthed out of the, 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 the intent and that you aren't experiencing what he intended you for. Like, that's what Jesus was so mad about. I can only 
just sort of imagine as I have kids that are getting older. My daughter starts middle school, oh my goodness, this week. But it's, it's like as you see your kids, though, and like you, you, know, you know who they are and you know what they're capable of. And when they screw up, it's not just that they screwed up, it's that they didn't live up to who you know they should be and could be. That's the, uh, isn't it? I think that's why Jesus was just like, no, no, are you kidding me? This is not a living thing. You're playing a game. It's a facade. This isn't the real deal. You were made for life and glory and peace and mercy and hope and vitality and joy. This is a robot. This is a system. This is just going through the motions. He said, my house will be a house of prayer. Be a presence like, like God intended you and me, this church, his people, to be a people of prayer, a people of the presence, not a people who just practice certain things. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus says, there's no life here. There's no life here. The glory's gone. The glory has departed, and y'all don't even notice you are so stuck in the circular rhythms of your worship and the circular rhythms of your systems and your power and your, your, your processes. You have no idea that the glory of God is gone. In fact, you didn't even recognize that the glory left and then the day that the glory of God in Jesus Christ, who was the word, who is the word, who is the living representation, he's the exact imprint of God. He, he is the word and we beheld his glory. You don't even notice when the glory of God walks in and starts flipping tables, you want to kill it. That's how jacked up you are. You want to reject me, and I am the very thing that you have lost. The glory has departed. Now, I know it's super easy for us to look objectively at Israel and think, well, wow, how, how did you go from the fire of God and the weight of glory so thick that you couldn't stand to the place at which now it's like a glorified theme park and there is no actual glory at all. It's just, it's just robotics. It's just this big machine that's just churning things out. And they don't even notice. How do they go from glory to this manufactured thing? How do they do that? And I would get us to kind of pump the brakes on our criticism for a second and think through. It had been 930 years since that day in 2 Chronicles 7 to the day that Jesus showed up. A lot can happen in 930 years. And it happens subtly. You see, the, the glory and the presence of God kind of just, just drifting away, it's not something that happens suddenly. It's, hap it's something that happens subtly. And just little by little, day by day, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, century by century, until they almost are at a thousand years where what it once was is no longer recognizable. And it had become this whole different thing. I, I did some thinking about this this week, about how, how glory fades and how it fades. And this is true for Israel. This is how it happened for Israel. And this is how it happens for us as individuals as we pursue God. And this is how it happens for churches. That, that, that no one just wakes up someday and their life crashes. No, one, no church just wakes up someday and they're healthy one day and they're closed the next day. That's not how it works. There's a gradual process that happens and it looks like this. If you, at first, there's a phase, phase one. I've been thinking about this all week, and I've just seen it. I've seen this pattern in my life. I've seen it in the church. Phase one, let's call it the meetings. I'm not talking like meetings, like when some of you like work in the workplace, you're like, oh my goodness, meetings. Uh. No, meetings, like I'm talking encounter. Let's call it meetings, moments, and movement. And this is the phase where it always begins with God. This is the phase that any new relationship begins at. This is where a business begins. You have a dream for a business. Uh, things always are birthed out of passion. Things are always birthed out of, out of the overflow of passion. And that's what this really is, this first phase where you're alive and it's real. For Israel, that Second Chronicles 7, that's what this phase was. It was that space where it just was, it was so real and so tangible. The glory was so present and obvious. For you, maybe you remember the day that you first met Jesus. 
I love talking to people that, 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 that just got saved. I talked to a guy last week, a guy named Ryan. He just came to church for the first time last week, been, had a very difficult life, and he was a man on fire. And he just couldn't believe, like, this is incredible. I'm changing so fast. It's this, it's this vital, alive space you get in when you first encounter God. Anybody remember? Or that day, the day your heart was strangely warmed, or that moment of encounter you had. It's real, it's vital, it's alive, it's living, it's active. It might not be developed. It might be a whole hot mess and it's organic and all that, but it's real. Yeah? But then what happens though, after this phase of personal encounter, a shift can take place. And it happens ever so subtly. In fact, it's almost undetectable. You, you, you don't even know when it's happened, but this subtle shift occurs where, where you get so caught up in what you're doing, you forget that it's about being. And you stop focusing on a who, and it starts to slowly become about a what. And you stop thinking about a someone and you start focusing on a something. And just ever so subtly, this shift happens and it leads us into phase two. And phase two, we'll call it, and everybody gets here. This isn't, everybody arrives here. Uh, this is the, this is the, we'll call this the flow phase. If there's an ebb in your in your Christian walk, if there's a, a flow and an ebb, this is the flow phase. This is when the tide comes in and the power of God is known. We'll call this the ebb. And in this phase, let's call it monotony, maintenance, and going through the motions. Where you just kind of start ever so subtly and ever so slowly, just getting in this repetitive rhythm. I go to church, I say my prayers. I tithe, I serve. I go to church, I say my prayers. I tithe, I serve. I go to church, I say my prayers. I tithe, oh, Christmas service, I say my prayers, right? And, like, <laughs> and you kind of get in this rhythm. You think about Israel, 930 years of doing the tasks of the priest. 930 years of the same sacrifices and the same system. It, I can understand how easy it starts to slowly become about a system instead of a someone. 930 years. You can kind of ever so subtly get lulled into this kind of slow monotony and you don't even notice at first, you don't even notice that the glory is actually departing because you're not focused on the glory anymore. You're now focused on what you're doing, not who he is. And it happens so subtly, week after week, month after month, year after year, where all of a sudden now, the, the, the glory in your mind was something that happened yesterday. Now here's where a great point of decision has to happen. It's right here where we can either decide to call on God to do our work of renewal, but I, I, I confess to say that's the rarity. Oftentimes, instead of stopping and saying, you know what, something is just ever so subtly off and I need to call on God to do a new and fresh work in my life. More often than not, we in our own stinking thinking think, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna do what I'm already doing, except more and better, which is the definition of insanity, by the way to do the same thing and expect different results, except that's what we do in the church, which moves us into phase three. Phase three, I'm gonna call it, we'll call it the manufacturing. M modeling, playing a part and machinery phase. And this is where the life of God ultimately degrades to. If you don't check your course and call out on God intentionally and periodically, you inevitably will degrade to this zone. This is where we get hypocrisy. It's the space where we begin to fabricate systems that emulate glory. Hear that. 
What happens after the glory departs and we get stuck in this phase as you as an individual or maybe a church will say, you know what, something, there's something missing. And instead of calling on God and saying, God, do a fresh work, reconnect us, revive us, you, you actually double down and you think, you know what, I'm gonna, we need to, we need, you know what we should do? We need to add a program. We need to create a new system. And we start to work into and trust into human ingenuity and development instead of calling on God for a fresh anointing. Instead of repenting and crying out to God for reconnection and revival of power in life, we think, I'm going to build a better system. No one does it on purpose. It's just something we innately do. And we start to trust that, oh, this program is really going to save a lot. Of, you know, Programs aren't bad, but they aren't God. And so what happens is we eventually build a machinery and something that was once intended to be alive is now a gross fabrication of what it was meant to be. It's the uncanny valley. It's the, oh, that's no living thing. That's religion. That's superstition. That's just, that's just some system you're trusting. There's no, there's no something. The glory's not there. That's how it happens. And this space, this is where Israel was at the time of Jesus. And it is incredibly destructive. This is where people get devoured. This is where people get hurt. And I think it's interesting. You think of what Jesus said. His indictment was twofold, wasn't it? Stay with me. This is unbelievably important, and this is a now word for us this weekend. His indictment was twofold. He said, this is no house of prayer, didn't he? So first he said, the glory and the power and the life of God is nowhere to be found, but then he has there's something else he tied to it, didn't he? There was a semicolon, and then he said, and you have made it a den of robbers. So not only is it not producing the fruit, it has an image of production, like Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, he said, it will have a form of godliness, but deny the power that can make it godly. He said, not only is it an image, not only does it have a promise of life, but no life, but watch this. Now, instead of giving the mercy and the life and the joy and, and the, the presence of God, instead of being a giving place, you're now a taking place. You've become a den of robbers. I made this to be a house of prayer for all nations. I made you to be a people that when you gathered and when people came to you, they experienced the supernatural, undeniable presence and power and glory of Almighty God. And now you've built up a machinery to mimic what it was, what it's supposed to be. And here's the problem with machines. Machines don't give, they consume, don't they? Well, they do things and they perform a function for us, absolutely. And there's, there's great things to be said about machinery. And I'm not poo-pooing systems and ingenuity. God, that's God-ordained and appointed. But if, it, if we make it the thing, it's a highly destructive thing. It is not our power source. It actually needs power. And so machines begin to consume they begin to take, and all of a sudden, a, a, a subtle shift will happen. You'll see it in the church all the time. You see tradition and sentiment starts to rise up. And we start to think, oh, you remember the glory days? God help us. Sentiment rises as momentum and vitality and true, true presence wanes. Programs start being built up when passion starts to dwindle. Heart revelation slowly gets replaced. Instead of that authoritative rhema proclamation of the word of God that penetrates hearts, it starts to get replaced by, revelation gets, gets, gets replaced by information. It doesn't bring transformation. And then transformation, real transformation, just gets replaced by behavior modification. Your heart doesn't change, just your actions. You see how things start to slowly shift. This is the inversion. What was supposed to be something that flowed is now something that sucks. And I did not mean that in a crass way, although it works. Demonstrations of power. 
It slowly gets replaced by either doubt. This is why you have some segments in the church that don't believe that there are miracles and signs and wonders because they haven't seen it in so long. And so they think, you know what? Obviously, when it says like the apostles did great miracles, that was just for them then. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that stuff anymore. That's what happens when the glory fades. You start trying to help the Bible. Or if it's not doubt, you know what else people do? Instead of to, to mimic the power of God, they create deceptive things. They try to, they make pretend things look like God's actually doing something when it's just people acting crazy. It's either doubt or deception when the real thing's gone. That's what happens. So what happens when things get inverted in a church, in a people of God. It happens in your own life. Grace and truth. You think about this. The grace and the truth of the word. What happens when it gets inverted? You'll see some people distort it this way, where everything is permissible. And licentiousness. Just They, they take the Bible and they're like, eh, he didn't really mean it. Or you'll see legalism where they'll double down and say, you better, you better do this and you better do that. And they divorce grace and truth. That's what happens when the glory departs. The thing gets inverted and it starts drawing power and it starts demanding certain things instead of depositing and giving. Do you see this? Does this sound familiar? In our lives, in the church, and none of us are, are exempt to it. We're all prone to this. This is a real thing that all of us can be guilty of. See, machines, they consume. You know the other problem with the machine is? They, get, they corrupt. Like, eventually, machines break down, don't they? are like, yep, I have cars. They eventually break down. They degrade, and they get destroyed. They break down. And that's what machines do. And that's what churches do. And that's what Christians do who don't have the glory when the glory departs and we start working in our own might, in our own system, in our own mechanisms over time. It might not be today, it might not be tomorrow, but there will come a day where it cracks and it breaks. If you've ever seen a person fall from their faith, it's because they went too long without oil in the machinery. This is why, this is why you see it in churches. I know some of you, you, you see like the Catholic church uh, sex scandal and you're like, how on earth could, could pedophilia be happening and then instead of repenting and, 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 and calling them on it, you try to cover it. How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. The glory departs and people build systems. Or you look at, you know, the Westboro Baptist Church out there with their picket signs, picketing people and say, tell, telling them that God hates you. How? How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. The glory departs. And systems are built, the machinery is built, and it starts to, to call and demand certain things instead of give and deposit. Whatever it is, like you think of the Crusades and the Inquisition, whatever it is in Christian history, you think of the fact that the KKK was birthed in the church. How? I'll tell you how. The glory departs. That's what happens when things get inverted. Machines break down. Now, here's the good news. I told I'd bring you an invitation, but I felt like the Lord wanted me to highlight how that works because I think we're in a season right now, and I'll, I'll share a bit in a minute, but we're in a season right now where, where we have a decision to make. And I think there are some people here as individuals, not just as, as a collective church, but there are some people here right now that you're identifying all too much with this zone right here. And it has been a long time since there was any actual movement. When was the last time your heart was moved? When was the last time you were stirred in prayer? I'm not saying just saying prayers. I mean stirred in prayer. When was the last time you felt the Spirit of God actually blow on the coals of your heart? Where's the glory? Now, the Bible says in Mark 11, Jesus, he goes in, he indicts them, flips the temple, flips all the stuff. He kind of lays down the intent and, and highlights their inversion, the perversion and the hypocrisy. But then the story doesn't end there. Watch this. It says in verse 20, in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree that Jesus had cursed withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, let's go back to that. Have faith 
in God. There it is. Don't put your faith in a system. Don't put your faith in a preacher. Don't put your faith in a denomination. Don't put your faith in a church. Don't put your faith in a program. Don't put your faith in a system. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, he's literally standing in front of a mountain, by the way. The temple was on a mountain. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whoa. Now, this is like Jesus at full 10 out of 10 intense mode. His actions with the tree were intense. His actions in the temple were intense. And his invitation right here is enormous. He says, have faith in God and believe and anything will be possible. That's amazing, isn't it? Now, let's, let's just bring it all, let's all wrap it all up here. Now, what is he talking about? So he curses a tree and he cleanses the temple. He curses the tree and he cleanses the temple. Now, where have I heard about cursed trees? What is he talking about? Most scholars actually believe that this is what's known as a living parable, that Jesus was actually acting this out as a prophetic act to communicate something greater that is about to unfold. What was he pointing to? He was pointing to the day where he was gonna march back in to the temple and he was gonna be tried for crimes that he did not commit. He was going to be spat upon by his creation. He was gonna be betrayed by his friends. He was gonna be whipped and brutally beaten by the powers of the Roman army. He was gonna be absolutely and utterly nailed to what? A tree, a tree, a cross, it's a tree to a cursed tree. And it's not just that he was nailed to a tree, but it actually tells us that they took him out and went up a mountain. And they raised his cross on a hill called Calvary. It's called Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place of death. He was literally hanging on the hill of death. He cried out with his last breath, it is finished. Now, Jesus had been talking all about, he said, in, he said at one point, Tear down this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. He did not just come to destroy, but he came to renew. He did not just come to tear down, but he came to build up. And so there, hanging on the cross, on the cursed tree, he was cursing the curse. He was cursing death at its roots. He was cursing decay and dysfunction and the monotony of religion and the robotics of the robotics of our lives and the, the repetition and the monotony of religion. He was cursing it at the root so that the fake thing would never be seen again. And if you want the real thing, you come to the new temple that he rebuilt on the third day in himself. You come to him and he says, I, hey, I am. I am all the things the temple was meant to be. I am the place where peace flows. I am the place where mercy flows. I am the place where new life flows, where purpose and glory and validation and vindication and direction and, and, and reconciliation. You can know that you're right with God when you come to me. This is what he meant when he said in, in John 15, he said, if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The temple is mobile. It is in the person of Jesus. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So the challenge for every believer and every church is to remain and to never let our systems and our services and our preachers and our programs, all of those things are hopefully great, but to never let those become the horse. They're the cart. He is the power that brings life. And without him, that isn't life. It's the uncanny valley. 
It's all it looks like life. It had the promise of life, but there, there's no life here. I felt the Lord on this weekend. I, I thought it was interesting that it's on a long weekend, but then I, I realized that it was seven years ago this weekend that I suddenly and unexpectedly was given the mantle of authority and responsibility to lead this church seven years ago this weekend. None of us expected that. God interrupted us. And I had been uh, a couple weeks ago, spent a day with the Lord and was asking him, God, what are our next 10 steps as a church? And I'd realized that it's the seven years, it's the end of seven years. And if you're familiar with your Bible, seven years means full circle. It's the completion of a season. And, and hopefully, the end births a new beginning. But oftentimes, we, if we're not intentional, can just kind of get stuck in this circular pattern where you go around and around the mountain doing the same thing, expecting different results, and slowly not realizing that the glory is dissipating and departing. And I felt the Lord as I was praying to him. I said, God, give me the next 10 steps for King's Church because I honestly don't know what they are. And I'll just be vulnerable for a minute. For seven years, uh, I've known what to do. God's given me wisdom and strategic insight as to what our next steps were. But he reminded me, and he said this, and he spoke to this very clearly. He said, he said, you and the church are not ready for steps two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. You have to go through the next one first. You need a renewal. You need a fresh work and a fresh touch. And you're gonna do the same thing that you did last time, but you're gonna be intentional about it this time. And I'm gonna pour out a brand new work. See, some of you don't know, you weren't here, but seven years ago, I was handed a mic to close a service when our church just got hit by unbelievable news that shook us and rocked us to our core. Anybody, just show a hands in the room. Anybody here for that? Smattering of you, which is testament to what God has done. And uh, I was handed the microphone. I was 29 years old at the time. And I literally said, I think my first words as acting pastor was, I have no idea what to do next. And then there's this ugly old banner on our back wall. It's not ugly. I love it. It's beautiful to me. And I looked up and I read it and it says 2 Chronicles 7. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and repent, Leave, forsake your machines and your idols and turn from their wicked ways and seek me. Like, seek my face. He promised, I will hear you and I will heal you. He promised it. And so I read that and I was like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to show up here Wednesday and just for the next season until we figure out otherwise, we're just going to seek his face and see that he heals us. And y'all, I... I can't describe to you what happened next. He did that. Like, our church changed fast. Like, what takes churches decades to change and to change the DNA, God did it for us in a season. And we became a brand new church. Like, he, he transplanted our heart. And I'll tell you something, it was glorious. We didn't shrink. We started to grow almost immediately. And God started to change us. We weren't just growing in number, but growing in identity. And we saw hundreds of people start to come to know Jesus. I, I got the math. I actually asked, hey, on record, what do we know for baptisms and, and people making decisions in the last seven years? We've baptized like 560 people in seven years. That's glory. There's been, there's been, over 1,800 people through online ministry, Celebrate Recovery, our events like Easter and Christmas and our regular invitations. We've had over 1,800 people in seven years say, I'm deciding to follow Jesus. 1,800. That's glory. 
It's glory what God has done. It is glorious. He, he's, we now have a presence in Halifax right now, meeting right now, West St. John. We, we've moved from 600 people to 1,200 people to 1,800 people every weekend on average. And there's now like 4,000 people that are part of this. God is taking our message. It literally goes all over the world. People from all over the world tune in. It's glorious. But I felt the Lord say this. You are at a critical moment where you decide to either turn it all in and call on me fresh or start heading around the mountain. And it's not going to happen overnight. You've done nothing wrong. The glory's still here. But if we don't, in this season, call out and cry out to God for a fresh work, we are missing a window of invitation. And I, for one, don't want to miss it. And so for the month of September, we have a theme, and it's a focus. It's not a series. It's a prophetic word we're putting over our whole church, and the word is revival. And we are asking that God would do a brand new and fresh work in our lives. We realize, look, we haven't drifted, nothing's wrong, but it's amazing that we're at this space right now where instead of getting blindsided, we get to, in full sight of God, humble ourselves and say, God, do something new. Awaken our hearts. Revive our hearts. And so we're going to contend for it. And you, you know what? We can't determine what it looks like. We can't determine how or when it comes. You, like I said, you can't make lightning strike. But what you can do is you can charge the ground and raise a tower. And that's what we're going to do for the next five weeks, all through September. The whole theme is just going to be, God, revive us, revive us, revive us. Do a new work. You can have it all. You're worthy of it all. We thank you for yesterday, but we in faith realize we can't forever call yesterday's glory glorious. It's not. How many of you know God leads us from glory to ever-increasing glory? That means that what once was glorious is now just going to become average. That God wants to do a new level of strength and a new level of glory. I do not want to be part of a church that rehearses what happened yesterday and looks on the land of the dead for that which is living. I want the presence of God here in a fresh and new way. And here's the good news. I believe he's inviting us to it. And I have it on good authority and inexperience to know that when you call on him, he hears. When you seek him, you find him. And so here's my invitation to you. And I, here's how I believe God's going to start this. I think he's going to do a collective work, but he's going to do it in us as individuals. And I want to pray right now that God would bring you into a new season of intimacy back to this zone, that he would do a work of renewal. I don't know, maybe, maybe you're somewhere here. If, if I could say where our church is, I think, I think we're probably right in this zone where we have a critical decision to make. Are we just going to keep doing business as usual and calling it glory? Or are we going to double down and say, God, do something greater? But I think a lot of us, where are you? Are you, you might be just going through the motions. You might be the, the actual epitome of lukewarmness. You are phoning it in every week. Some of you might full on be here where this is just something you do. You're like, you're like a whitewashed tomb. Here's the good news. Whether you're here or here, the invitation is the same. Call on God and he will hear you and he'll do a fresh work. And so here's what I'm going to do. I want to pray. and We're going to be done in just a second. I know I've gone long, but this is, this, is, this is a moment in time I believe God has opened a window of opportunity for us. And so I want to call those today, you've felt something stirring in your spirit and you know God's saying that, yeah, yeah, it's been great, but that was yesterday and I have a fresh work for you today. And you feel God calling you to that. I want to pray today that God would open up a brand new season of meetings and moments and movement and vitality, that the glory of God, like in the, in the temple, would just fall upon you. The fire of God will fall upon you in a fresh way in this season. And if that's you, I'm going to pray, and I want to invite you, as I'm praying, to stand and open your hands and receive what I believe the Lord is imparting today. Here's what I don't want you to do. Do not stand and go through the motions, please. I know when you get in a room like this and everyone starts standing like, well, I don't want to be the only loser sitting. Don't do that today. Okay? You and God, you, you, you call out on him and see that he doesn't open the door of a brand new season. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask for myself 
and for you. And as I pray, you respond and say, yeah, me too, Lord. Me too. Do a fresh work. I don't care if you're 80 years old. When was the last time you wept before the Lord? Or you're eight. Maybe it was last week. You literally got saved last week. You know what? Call on him for a fresh work. His mercies are new every morning. So Father, right now, we humbly, like we did seven years ago, we humbly call out to you in whatever season that we're in, whatever circumstance that we're in, Lord, we say you're not done with us. We haven't arrived. And Lord, what we don't want is just go around the mountain. We don't want to just go through the motions. But Father, I pray right now for every person that has stood, whether they're in the room or even watching online, Father, I just agree with their obedience and just declare over them right now in Jesus' name, the open door of a brand new, a brand new season. You are opening a new season. As they seek you, Lord, they will find you in Jesus' name. Father, I pray for an increase of glory right now in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray for an increase of intimacy right now in the name of Jesus, that there would be much fruit evidenced in their lives in the name of Jesus as you abide in them and they abide in you, as they remain in you and they actually go deeper with you, Father. We pray for greater fruit. So Lord, would you prune off whatever needs to be pruned off? Would you remove whatever needs to be removed? And God, would you deposit and add the life that we so desperately need? So Father, over every person right now, I just declare a season of revival. Father, dreams in the night, visions in the day. Lord, words whispered into their spirits, even as they work, God. Lord, would you speak to them through nature and creation. God, when they open their Bibles, Father, I pray that the word would jump out of them and land in their spirit and it'd be fresh bread baked from heaven just for them in Jesus' name. So, Father, I just speak renewal right now over us, Father. Take us deeper. The living word Father, would you give us an awareness and a discernment for the counterfeit in Jesus' name? Lord, would you give us an appetite for the holy and would you give us a distaste for anything that is mimicking life that is not life in Jesus' name? Would we be repulsed by it like you were? Would we just know, hey, this is supposed to be real fruit, something's missing here, and would we know to seek you in that moment? So Father, I just deposit a fresh hunger over us in the name of Jesus. Father, we just pray it in the name of Jesus, hunger that will be satisfied as we turn to you in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Don't be done. In this spirit of prayer, Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer. That means that we are going to be a people who know how to pray, not just as individuals, but we know how to pray together. Amen. And now I'm going to push you to do something uncomfortable. You know what's uncomfortable? Stretching out of old habits getting out of the old comfort of the old wineskin. A baby's not super comfortable when birth happens, but guess what? It's new life. And so here's what's going to happen. I believe that there's coming a day where thousands of people gather at King's Church, and we know not just how to praise God, but how to pray together out loud. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you to pray along with me, and I'm going to pray for a season of revival as in us as King's Church. A, a revival that falls and flows out of us, that we would be a, a house of prayer for the region and that we would see a mass return of people coming to know Jesus in this season. And we're going to agree together over it. Can we do that? I don't want to be the only person praying right now. So we're going to pray together. Some of you need to stretch your hands. Some of you need to stretch your faith and open your mouth and pray right along with me. So let's pray and let's ask God. Let's cry out to God together for a fresh touch and a fresh fire, a fresh work of his power in us. So Father, right now we cry out to you, Lord, in one voice, unified in spirit. And we say in Jesus' name, a fresh work in us, God. Thank you that we know when we call on you, you answer. That when we seek you, we find you. And so Lord, in Jesus' name over King's Church, a fresh work of revival in our hearts. Would you transform our hearts? Would you change our minds? Would you change the atmosphere in this place? Lord, would you take us to a new level of glory in the name of Jesus? New degrees of strength in the name of Jesus. God, with yesterday's glory pale in comparison to what you do in this next season. Lord, we will not go around the mountain again. We're going up in Jesus' name. So Father, we hear your invitation today in Jesus' name. 
name, just like we did seven years ago, and we say we're crying out to you, God, for a fresh work in your church. We are your church, and we are your people, and we are a house of prayer, and we exist for this region, for the glory of God, and for the healing of the nations. So, Father, we pray such a profound work of God happen in us that it flows into the region, that the economy shifts, that families are healed in Jesus' name. Healing in Jesus' name. Father, we pray that addictions are broken in Jesus' name, that families are made whole in Jesus' name. We prophesy divorce rates going down in Jesus' name. Drug use going down in the name of Jesus. Poverty going down in the name of Jesus because of the work you do in this season. Father, revival over this Atlantic Canadian region. Lord, would thousands come to know you in this season, we pray. And now, God, we call forth the prodigals and we say, hear the invitation of the Lord. The Father is calling you home. You who are far off, and we prophesy in faith right now in Jesus' name that this is the season that parents who have been praying and contending for their child, this is the season they're coming home. Lord, we are praying for the hopelessly lost to find you in their midst and to return to you, Lord. And God, would we be a beacon calling them? Would we be a light in the darkness, a city on a hill where thousands come and they find the living bread, they find the glory of God, no robots and no counterfeit. They find Jesus and only Jesus. They find the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and the Lord of Hosts and they find that forgiveness and they find that transformation and they find that new life in Jesus' name and all God's people say. Amen. Give him a praise. Come on. You're worthy, Lord. You're worthy, Lord. Hey, we hope you enjoyed the message today. If you want to stay up to date, go ahead and click subscribe to follow us on YouTube. And hey, if you want to partner with us in getting these messages farther, you can go to our website and find out ways that you can give and help us get the good news of Jesus further than ever before.